0: Okay, everybody. <laughs> Let's give our featured speaker a uh, round of applause. Ray. <clears throat> Let's I'm only nervous for a minute. Hi, everybody. My name is Ray. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Uh, my sobriety date is the fifth of February, nineteen eighty-three, and uh, my home group is the, uh, the Saturday Night Rainbow Group in uh, Visalia. Everyone's welcome. Um, my sponsor is Deb with thirty-four years of sobriety, and uh, if we're not for all Anonymous, who would be able to do this? This is not normal for me to uh, stand and talk like this. I get a little nervous, I do, but I'll get better. Um, I spoke to my sponsor. And I always I always talk to my sponsor to um, get reminded about you know, spreading the message and not the mess and uh, he said that I get you nervous I can lie, so <laughs> in fact, yeah, my sponsor probably. I just love I love humor and I am just in all callers anonymous, that's true we do. Um and he said, you know, like I've always heard, you know, share about my experience and what happened and most importantly what's uh going on today you know because people know how to get drunk and uh alcoholics need to know how to stay sober and uh with my 29 years of sobriety one day at a time uh it is all because of alcoholics anonymous and the amazing examples of the men and women in these rooms um, so with that you know just and, and i and i always feel like i should say a disclaimer or something about my life and i i, I tend to edit some of it because I don't like to make people uncomfortable um, with uh, where my alcoholism took me and uh, the type of like Phil thank you for your share I I relate to people when they talk about issues as young people and so forth and uh, I come from an area uh, where it was okay for the the men, the, the boys I should say Okay for us to drink and I'm I'm uh, Apache so I res near uh, southeastern uh, New Mexico and I remember when we were growing up, um they used to have these little half beers. I, I always mention this and I don't know if they didn't make them anymore, but these little cans and um they would give it to us and I was probably five years old at that and that wasn't my drinking that. I mean if I drank them but that wasn't when I was that I did not consider that drinking alcoholically. And uh, it was okay for the boys to trade, not the girls and uh our home life i I just figured everybody was like that uh, abusive um scary <laughs> uh, and uh it was hard it was a hard a hard life, and i didn't know it i, I would have, growing up i didn't know we were we were money poor but not poor in other ways. We raised all our own food uh, we hunted um Hand me down clothes. My mom made me a lot of their clothes and stuff like that. And and we were relatively, you know, we had spots, you know, whatever fun you could have. But what happened was for me was in the area, it was, it was a hard life and uh, not knowing that. And uh, alcohol was always present. And for uh, Native people, alcohol really was always present. Um, my generation, my generation was the one that started with the, uh, of other outside issues of drugs and so forth. Uh, but after the last time it was, it was alcohol and it was, it was okay to drink and it was okay to see the kids fall down and, uh, they would laugh at them and so forth like that and it was accepted. So I was starting and I always like to mention, you know, all these mixed messages that I was getting when I was growing up. A lot, I got a lot of mixed messages, a lot of it was okay to drink. It was okay to... I didn't know what getting drunk was. It was drunkenness happened when we drank that stuff, you know? And um, I remember about... I was about eight years old. This is about the hard life I thought about. I thought it was just fun, picking cotton. You know, we, we picked cotton. I was eight years old, picking cotton. Started driving a, a Chevy pickup, you know, and uh, when I was about nine, you know, because my dad sort of how to drive, you know, um, Out in the fields and so forth. As it is. And, you know stuff like that. I Just figure it's normal. I was probably eight or nine years old when they gave us a rifle to go shoot with. You know, I, I look at kids nowadays and i like, what kid at eight years old with a rifle? Well, you know, I'm like, what the hell are these people thinking? You know. But I mean, it was normal. It was all these mixed messages and stuff. Um, when they really got the thing that started picked sick for me. Was the abuse uh, at an early and at an early age used to beat us so that we wouldn't cry but the boys don't cry men don't cry that was another mixed message i had um and uh i got beat yeah, i really did um when i was um, around 10 years of age i was um i am a survivor of, of sexual abuse and uh that was a really uh uh horrendous time for me for uh, a couple of years of years and uh this is one of those mixed messages i got early on um, because they would um, I just figured uh, how I tied in with was we would hear about God in these rooms and the spirituality in this program and so forth like that and I just
1: had given up
0: you know I just thought God you know I'm a bad kid I'm going to hell anyway because they used to make us go to church this uh, first southern baptist church and we sat in the back of the church and the white people sat in the front and I remember um, I didn't understand what the word heathen was but the preacher would yell at it, to yell it out and look at us, you know, they look directly at me, you know, like you, are going to hell. So I figured I was going to hell anyway, so. Um, another big message I got early, in my early life. Um, so when this stuff started happening to me about the sexual abuse and so forth, at around, I was around 19, 19 years of age, I can't remember. Um, I've just given up on God and I've just given up on the church and thinking that anyone's going to help me, you know. And that's when I started, and I know this, that's when I started to drink. And I look back at this point in my life, um, because it's really when I look at it when I was starting to drink alcoholically at that time and it was, I somehow got a hold of an 80 proof, uh, Barcardi Run bottle. And the reason I talk about drinking alcoholically is I didn't drink the whole bottle, and that's about an immediate inch, because I didn't want to get in trouble for drinking the whole bottle, you know, so I left a little bit, and I uh, got violently ill, so what it did, it started this amazing medicine for me to numb what was going on in my life, to make sense of the nonsense, to make sense of the abuse, and I didn't know that, I just thought that was normal that went on, so my drinking, I, I talked about, uh Alcoholic and drinking about the age of 11, and it, my progression um, was pretty uh, quick. Uh, I couldn't get enough because that it just—I needed to numb myself emotionally. Uh, I'd already died spiritually, um, and then the uh, physical stuff. You know, even when I broke a bone or something like that, or I had a broken bone, you know, I would numb it with the alcohol, and I couldn't get enough alcohol. I just. You know, that i was feeling it or doing what i had to do with it and um then with that progression of course um i started to go to bars when i was 16 years old and um uh, doing things that uh, i needed to do when i didn't have because i didn't have the money to drink the way i needed to drink and as I say, you know, the people talk about their stories a lot of fun and this was some so fun for me too but I get pretty tragic too and I, I became a little uh, a a first of all um uh but it's just a male prostitute. Um, I also noticed that people in the bars were watching people around pool tables and I li- I needed the attention. I wanted the I sought out the attention. And uh so what I did, I started to learn to play pool and I became quite good at it. I was a little pool shark, and uh, to get that to play for drinks and uh, for money, and um my drinking has played more from that 80 proof. I was not a drinky, 151. And drink drank, 151. That, was my, that was my drug of choice, 151. And um, again, I got to mention at one time at a bar, <laughs> this man uh, saw me ordering a drink, and uh, he lit my drink on fire. And I almost beat him up and um, made him buy me a couple of days because I didn't know he lit on fire. I did not know that. He lit my drink on fire. Um, but that's how I, I drank. I drank like that. I drank a lot. I drank a lot. My blackouts, I didn't know what blackouts were. That was the other part I wanted to bring up. Is the fact that I didn't know what blackouts were. I learned a lot of stuff in alcoholics. I don't know how sick I really was. And. Um, i just thought i was crazy you know god had given up on me i'm going to hell anyway and uh when i drank i would end up in places and i always had good intentions i always like to mention i always had good intentions to go on you know and have a good time um and and i never thought about trouble you know and uh i was a little uh raiser too and i was a a good street fighter Um, i did a little problem i had uh, anger issues and uh, I did not know at that time in my early years, you know, that uh, what had happened to me had really twisted me up so much that I had a very short fuse, uh, especially toward white, tall white men. Um, and um, going out to the bars where I was and the places I hung out, if you were a tall white man, there was some reason, <laughs> like, you know, uh, I would go after him just to, with a pool stick, with a a adjust, I was just not a nice guy to be around. And that wasn't my intention. It really wasn't. Uh, it was just, again, all those mixed messages I could get. But my drinking, because the way I had to drink, uh, I went to places where I um, um, wasn't welcome and after I drank a little while, they really didn't welcome me, you know. Um, the cops would be called, and the times I got locked up were fighting. And uh, I only had, and I've got to mention this, in my drinking time, um, I, only have, I only got three DUIs. But I'm a blackout drunk driver, and for a lot of years, I drank and drove drunk. And, and I want to talk about being yeah. a to society. I truly was. Uh, when I was eighteen, I met um, my first partner, and uh, he, I didn't know anything about gay bars. You know, I was going to to redneck uh, bars and honky uh, tonks, and I could you know two step and Cotton Eye Joe and Dozy and some Blue Little Waltz was the best of them. I just loved to be on the dance floor, and not that I was interested in the women. I was just wanted to be you know in the you know to be noticed, you know, and. Uh, My gosh, those were some fun times. They really were. But they always ended up pretty bad and dark. They really did. But when I was 18, my partner uh, took me to my first gay bar, and I thought I died and went to heaven. because I didn't know there were other people like me. I didn't. And again, that was the progression more of my disease, and I was able to uh, use my little talent to uh, get more drinks, and I also got into more of the drugs, um, which added to my twisted behavior. And uh, I, there was always more. I was just—I became addicted to more, uh, more of anything. And anything would just change the way I felt or felt or what I thought. And um, there were some men that uh, called me a chameleon because I never was comfortable with who I was, and they never knew that it was just a game for them. How I was going to come out that night, you know. You know, the military outfit, I was a chameleon. I just fit in to get what I needed and like a little keep in the night and steal what I wanted and give away and drink. And I drank a lot. I didn't realize how much damage I was doing to my body. Uh, spiritually, like I say I was already dead. And uh, when I uh, got to be out, I was in my early 20s, I guess it was, when I found out about... Um, free-baking cocaine and, uh, that in itself. I would I go. how do people get addicted to coke after that? You know, I was always looking at the differences, you know. But, cocaine helped me drink more. It really did. I, mean, <laughs> I remember getting really sore jaws from that stuff. But, man, I could, I could just drink and drink and not, and for days, you know, days. I, I so, that was a little twisted part of my late 70s, early 80s time. My, um, my uh, drinking also ended up helping help me. But also, you know, I don't like talking about some of the stuff that I talk about, but it, it, it has to, this is about a program honesty and, and how bad it got for me. And because I didn't have the money to drink that I, the way I drank, and early on when, when I got sick, you know, all I could think of when I was vomiting vomiting was um, them wasting this booze. So I ended up with an eating disorder because I figured if I don't eat. I won't grow up, so I would not eat for long periods of time. So when I was brought in, when I got in off Anonymous, that was another issue I had to deal with. I had a lot of issues I had to deal with. But um, so I would binge eat, um, drink constantly. But uh, it was really a sick thing for me to, uh, and it was hard for me to admit that to to another human being, because you know, it was another sign of weakness. And where I grew up, and that's one thing I wanted to bring up is that we were told and taught not to ask white people for anything. I didn't know what a black person was like until so I came to California. And we were we knew our place. There were signs in stores that said, dogs and neck out back. And you couldn't even go into the My dad couldn't go into the, of the store. He had to go around the back. He was going to get groceries for us and so forth. These are a lot of mixed messages I used to see growing up. And uh, so it's easier for, I feel it's easier now for people to... Semestro alcoholics not, I'm a Castasier instead of like broken and, and always mixed messages that I had at the age of twenty five when I was brought in here. I'm, I'm five today and I've not had it necessary to drink. But before I got to fifty five I was so messed up. And I thought I was doing okay. You know, I was I was uh like doing live. I really was. I was Having fun, you know. I didn't realize how sick I was. I had, uh, tried to commit suicide a couple of times, uh, when in, my, in my teenage years. Um, I actually overdosed, uh, a couple of times, and I remember one of the, one of the times I remember coming out of it and touching at a guy I didn't even believe in yeah. because I, I came out of it. You know, I didn't intend to, you know, to overdose. It was just stuff that happened, you know. I forget. Well, you know, I had like, I was like a pharmacist. You know, I had all these pills and all these powders, and of course, I had my booze, and then I had my company booze. You know, and uh, man, don't don't ever don't ever look above the refrigerator and try to touch my stuff. And man, I would I would just go off. You know, I didn't like people touching my stuff. But um, I would I would just want to kick to that point, and it was just like go over. Well, there's one time I was going to share with you about um, overdosing. Was um, I was in. I I still can't say that I was two or three days in the bed uh, before uh, this lady that I worked at a Valley Medical Center in Fresno, actually. Uh, I worked there, and uh, one of the nurses there was a friend of mine. And uh, they were concerned about me, and uh, she got the uh, manager to open the uh, apartment door, and they found me, she found me, in my bed. And I had been packed out on a bonnet. You imagine what other body fluids there were uh, after a couple of days in that bed. And uh, cigarette burn marks on my chest as I passed out with a cigarette on me. And so it's a miracle I didn't uh, burn the place down, you know, the way that was. And I used to uh, reach over in the mornings and you know, I was one of those people who took the cigarette butt out of the drink, drink to the, get to the liquor. I did that, you know. It was not pretty uh, toward the uh, last years of my drinking. Anyway, my, my friend Patricia uh, found me, picked uh, me up, and I had I withered. I was so thin by then. I'll keep pretty healthy now. But um, I had withered so much, and I didn't realize, and I didn't know what the, the bleeding was about. I, I bled out of my mouth, and other viruses, and I didn't know where that blood was coming from. But I was I dreaming more to get that blood case out of my mouth. And... Uh, she picked me up, and uh, I still remember wanting to look you know, said, go take me to the hospital where we work, you know, because I didn't want them to know how bad, you know. <laughs> they already knew about some other life. at told in the emergency room. But uh, So she took me to a private doctor first, and I said, this is sick <sighs> alcoholic that I am, or I was at that time. Um, they gave me a quick little history, and they asked me how much I was drinking, and I told them, oh, a good 10 or 12, you know, drinks. So they were like, Surprise, you know, oh, that was before I left my apartment, you know, the microscope. You know, I didn't tell about my drinking, you know. Um, and I still remember to this day that that doctor telling me, he well, well, you know, cut you know, down on that and get some rest. And all I heard was, get some rest. So, I, when I went out that night, because I, I went out every night. Um, went out, and I remember telling the bartender, uh, my doctor says I have to get some rest, you know. So i got to get out of here by 12 o'clock. And I, and I lasted maybe two nights. To me, it may be three, but I, I remember it was no more than that. But I drank tw- twice or three times as much before midnight so that I can, you know, find somebody and take them home and drink more at home. But, but I was about to say in my mind, I was getting rest because I was leaving the bar at 12 o'clock. That didn't last a lot, like I said. Sick stuff that I did, really sick stuff. Anyway, um, I just I I like a little tip of the iceberg of my drinking and my behavior. So I, said, I "I like to talk about know what it happened. Um, in uh, September 1980, my partner uh, died of drinking and driving and I didn't make the connection even at that time, 23rd of September uh, 1980. He went through a four-way, he thought it was a four-way stop, but it wasn't It was a two-way stop, and he got killed. And uh, that, to me, was even more of a downfall for me because I ended up with this hole in me that I didn't know how to fill it. You know, and all I could do was, think, again, one of those automatic things, as an, an alcoholic, drink more. And uh, this was in 1980. Of course, I had a few more years in my drinking. And... Um, I didn't even talk about the time I was, got lost up, up in New Mexico before I was killed. A man, um, so they, I got hit, he hit I was going to break up a fight, and because and, uh, I just my intentions were to go and have a good time with my brothers and stuff. And uh, my younger brother started to fight, and I went to break it up because I just wanted to drink. And the guy that I was breaking up the fight, I didn't know who he was, and he hit. And I don't like. Again, remember I was physically abused as a child, so I don't like to get hit in the face. I didn't even play that. I just. I'm a lot better now. And uh, this guy hit me, and not knowing who I was, and um, not bragging or anything like that, but I was pretty busted in back then. I really was. I was all that. And I, I, I hit that man so hard. I, I still remember like this, if I him like this, flying up to seen his boots or feet coming up off the ground when I hit him, and he flew back and hit a phone booth because it was in the bar, and I split his head open and almost killed him. Ended up from that, um, you know, I didn't go half that bar, with friends of his, and I ended up fighting all these guys in the street with a, there was a spot-off shotgun, brass knuckles, it was just knife I'd get shot at, and I, it was just a, was just a I was just I don't want to just have a good time, you know, leave me alone, these guys, at least, you know, it was just a, and that was not... You know, once in a while, it happened more than not I just don't like to talk about that stuff. That so just because people did it was really sad and sick. because I hurt a lot of people. I really did. Um, anyway, what ended up happening was uh, for myself after my partner died, I drank more and more. My blackouts were more severe. People were concerned about me uh, because I would show up at work at the emergency room when I was. Uh, on one of the ships that I wasn't supposed to be on and I would lie to them I thought like, oh, I forgot something in my locker or whatever reading the booze and I used to at one of the desks I'd get the alcohol swab I had the cleanest desk in the whole office but I cleaned my desk with those alcohol because I was reaching the booze just pouring out coming out of my pores it's just but I had a clean desk I never really did like nobody knew I you know. oh, it was awful I was just lying to myself lying to myself um, what ended up happening was um, I lost a lot of friends uh, from my partner dying to other friends of mine dying and I never connected the dots, you know, the overdoses, um, the suicides. Uh, I, I could think of some amazing good friends of mine that hung themselves. Uh, even this past year, the little year I talked about it when it means one of my cousins uh, at nine o'clock in the morning put a gun to his head he was 50 years old and uh killing stuff and a few months after that another cousin of mine overdosed He was about 46 and um as a recovering alcoholic i can i can have that empathy for the that's their best thinking at that time my cousins you know the disease of why is not in my family and i uh, other family members said how about they do it all heartbroken i said well that's the best they could do at that time you know i was just too chicken shit to put the gun in my head and, um, but I was killing myself in other ways. I truly was. And uh, the, the main thing that I killed was the spirit within me. And what it ended up happening was, and I want to talk about the recovery part of my life and how <coughs> grateful I am for Alcoholics Anonymous because I, I'm here today and I have the uh, opportunity to share, you know, that this program does work. You know, for someone like me, where I came from, was so different than, and anyway. Uh, you know, The last uh day when I was uh drink well the month before I the last drink I had I was sentenced. Uh like I had to go in front of a judge in January. I couldn't be quitting drinking in the holidays. I, that was another difference in the head. Why would someone quit drinking in November? It's the best time to drink, you know. I used to tell people, "My, like, oh, it's my birthday, like three months before July, you know, get drinks, I good drinks, you know, just live, life, live, life." Anyway, after that, why said, "Why would people? If you're a real alcoholic, you wouldn't stop drinking in November or December. Those are all those are party times, you know." Um, and the thing about college, I want to mention this one last thing about before I quit drinks, was I, I went away to college because the Vietnam War ended even though I didn't listen to he didn't do something I wanted to do something different my brother was over in Vietnam and I wanted to go But the war ended and I go now nah, nah, you know God hates me you know I think that so I said I'll go to school because I want to try something different so I went to college registered for business and and uh, I remember the, um, uh, being told by a, a, person, a white professor, Mr. Dr. Sanders, you know, if you want to be in making business, you got to cut your hair, wear blue slacks, black shoes, a white shirt. And so I did that, and I started, you know, I, I cut my hair, and also, you know, I took those directions. That just felt awful for a long time. It just felt terrible, cutting my hair, because of my people that's a traditional thing. And um, anyway, I did that, but I only lasted about... A, until uh, so my third, maybe even my third semester. And I thought, God, this drinking is just in the way. You know, i got to stop them. I'll quit for a semester and then I'll get this out of my system and I'll finish school. Well, Twelve years later, I was able to go back to school. But it just, you know, I didn't get it. I didn't understand how it like, had its claws in me. And I couldn't, I didn't have the tools. I didn't know how not to drink. When I got to the point where I was sentenced in January, the beginning of January of 1983, I still didn't get it. You know, I was looking at a prison time after these other offenses I'd had, and they were, they were fine. I didn't even know some of the stuff that they were saying I had done. I go, well, all right, I guess so. You know, I don't remember doing that stuff. Um, and they were going to send me to prison. And I didn't like getting locked up. And I was getting locked up six or seven times, and I didn't like it. I don't don't recommend that for anybody. But uh, takes what it takes. And uh, I drank for another month. And for me, when I started trudging this road of happy destiny, what ended up happening on the fifth of February, nineteen eighty-three, I was um, in my two my two-bedroom filthy apartment, all by myself. I didn't have any. I had one one friend, Richard, who was in this program um, because he needed it. And. Uh, uh, I remember drinking that, and I tell people I was reduced to a tall Bud White, that's what I was reduced to, drinking, you know, on the floor in my living room, and I remember it was the longest drink that I can remember drinking, it took me 30 minutes to drink that tall Bud, and when it was done, it was literally, was like drinking air. Alcohol, for me, stopped working that morning, and when I... Uh, finished tipping the can, I looked at the clock and it was 10 o'clock in the morning. That was my last drink. And I said, okay, now what? Well, God <laughs> told me what. Um, I'd never gone through withdrawal. You know what that was? You know what to expect. And, uh, the next day I wasn't feeling well. And I called my friend Richard and I said, I don't feel good. He goes, no, oh, that's okay. You're just having DTs. You know, those happen in a couple days. Well, this alcohol, the way I pickled myself, I had about six days of extreme serious withdrawals. And my friend Richard was coming to pick me up and taking me to meetings. And back then, we didn't have styrofoam cups. We had mugs and tin, ashtrays and you know, all that stuff. And uh, this is uh, something that I, I vaguely remember, and I still do remember. I, I, I actually withdrew in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Shakes. Sweating, uh, diarrhea, um, it was not, not pretty. And uh, I couldn't drink. One, one, of the, one of the times I was at a meeting, I couldn't hold my cup. I was shaking so badly. And I, all I could do was hang on to the metal chair. And somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous stood behind me. I don't know who this person was, man or woman. I don't know. It was just a member of, the, of this program stood behind me and helped me drink my coffee. That is unconditional love. To this day, I still gravitated toward an alcoholic in the room of Alcoholics Anonymous, who's sweating and stinky. I I gravitate toward that person because they remind me of how bad it was for me. And I thought I was doing okay. You know, you go around the room right now, we don't see people like that. I don't very often. Um, But that was me. Anyway, I had about six days of serious withdrawals. And then I had about four maybe five days of okay just doing kind of okay and I remember waking up on the fifth day or whatever after that and uh, for some reason I looked down and my hands were shaking and I don't know why but I knew oh no they're back (laughs) and I had another series of withdrawals just as severe as the first one for about another four or five days um, and, I, and I've been in alcoholics for a while. And I've heard of two other men and a woman share their story with me that they've had like three sex like that. So it takes what it, it takes for it to you. So I, I did not know I was detoxing like that. I, I didn't know. I didn't know, was that, I didn't know it was that bad. But my friend Richard, who all this time, was picking me up and taking me to meetings. I couldn't carry anything. You know, I, I couldn't carry anything. Um, And I felt so uncomfortable in these rooms because they were all, and I talk about this, all older white people, and they're probably like 30, you know. Uh I I was 25 years of age, and I mentioned this because I was was looking at all the differences. And I thought, jeez, what are these people? How are they going to help me? How can they possibly understand what I have been through, all these little things that I talked about, and I don't want to minimize it, because that's serious stuff about the sexual abuse, about the overdoses, about the, the suicides, about trying to, you know, kill somebody or even wanting to kill myself and these crazy thoughts and, that I was I was insane. You know? I, I really had accepted accepted the fact that I was that that made sense to me. You know, that's a big pop up, you know? You anyway, know, these people kept uh, telling me, Keep coming back, you know, and you know, and um, uh they ended up telling me that you know not to talk because I was a newcomer, and that was that was a real big one for me because they would tell me uh take I' have years of sticking your mouth." You can't tell us a different way of we getting drunk. You need to listen to us to so our over and sober. They were mean to me, you know. And I was like, Don't say, no, you know I wanted to help, you know. I really wanted to help. And I, and I had stuff to say, you know, at that time. And um, they wouldn't let me. And I needed, I needed that. I needed that. Back then, it was, it was all about alcohol. It truly was. Um, people couldn't even talk about poison. They would, they would just shut you up. You couldn't talk about any outside issues. Like I not i didn't understand traditions yet or anything. I didn't understand that. I just felt uncomfortable about women's boobs and the God word on the wall. Uncomfortable, uncomfortable. I just—I didn't want to be there. And uh, what it happening was, I, deep enough, where I started to hear messages that makes sense I go oh not only for the men but the women in the room because I never had anything I common anything you can call it women other than attraction for men <laughs> and uh, I started hearing true messages about my disease and I go what disease I disease you know what the hell I'm okay you know because again I thought I was doing okay and uh, I kept hearing about this this being disease and so then when I started getting the opportunity to talk, I thought Alcoholics Anonymous was, I guess, you know, group therapy, you know. I didn't realize how far down my existence had gone. Um, so when I started sharing stuff at that time, it was made a lot of people uncomfortable in the room. My home group was the first of fellowship. And that's when I started first hearing, you know, people nudging me. <laughs> Well, you are you going to that? <laughs> uh, you need to get a sponsor and, and uh, work on those issues, you know, stats. And, I, and again, it was about that thing about white people. How am I going like, to ask a white man to help me? You know, how's, this, how's a white man going to feel? Because again, that mixed message I had growing well, up, you don't ask white people for anything. You know, I didn't understand how this program worked. I just didn't want to hurt you anymore. And I didn't want to go to prison. So I'd already been sentenced to a program in prison and so forth like that. So. Anyway, in ended up happening was, I looked around the room, and I kept hearing about sponsorship. You know, this is, and I'll, I'll share this, because this is not the way you pick a sponsor. Um, and there was this guy, Bill Moore, a yeah, big, tall, white guy, leather jacket, tough, you know, and, you know, that's the one for me. <laughs> so I go, he's the one who probably can handle me. So, and he was at a lot of the meetings I was and At that time, I was going to two, three, sometimes four meetings a day, and I did that for over a year and a half. Because I heard, you know, if you drank every day, you'd go to a meeting every day. Well, I drank a hell of a lot, so I forgot i go a lot of meetings. You know, and I did. And in Fresno, we had them early in the morning, you know, before work, noontime, right after work. We had candlelight meetings at 11 o'clock. I couldn't sleep anyway, you know, so I was always in meetings. The other thing that I want to mention was I was also uh, financially bankrupt. And uh, I was literally starving in my early recovery. Uh, and I loved the donuts and someone had birthdays and cakes I was able to really gorge on that stuff and then I would go home and get violently ill because of my eating disorder but I was starving in Alcoholics Anonymous um, and not knowing again didn't know how to ask, I didn't know how to ask for help and uh, the thing about my sponsor was after the meeting I <laughs> would go up and I see a lot of people talk, gravitated towards Bill and he was talk tall guy and maybe, they'd always be talking to him and and so I would go and I stand by him behind him, you know, and I kept waiting. It took almost a little, almost three weeks before I did. I got it angry, already. I kept waiting. It was almost three weeks. I kept doing this behavior, going I the meeting, standing behind him, waiting for him to ask me if he could sponsor me, mm-hmm. you know. And finally one day I was so mad at this man, he looked down at me and he goes, "What?" He goes, well, "I'm waiting for you to sponsor me." He goes, "No, you have to ask me." So I, I, that was, he was teaching about being humble, that humility, and he taught me a whole bunch of stuff. And that word, I thought, mad weak. I didn't like that word. And, uh, I was, he taught me about being ignorant, which I didn't like that either, you know, and I didn't understand what that was. He taught me, he was very patient, my friend, my, my, up be my friend. But, um Bill ended up taking me, um, under his wing, sharing with me about the big book, and he shared with me how to work the steps which he explained to me about spiritual principles tied to every step he had me work a step read a tradition and go a step do a tradition and so forth ask questions go to meetings go to variety of meetings do uh, right praying and that's said, lot and again there's that whole big message about God I don't think I can pray I, wait, I don't know how to pray he says if you get the big book he go to page 63 he says, you read this and the third step prayer you know and then you just Get that down pat, you read this page 76, you know, 10 of prayer. You showed me the other prayers, 11 of that prayer, you know, on page 87 80 or you know, and that big book numbers, you know, but when God is present in my life, when I work with another individual, I remember stuff, you know, and I just keep stuff alive when I'm sharing because, like I said, my, my life and with my drinking and drugs and my behavior got really, really sick and really uncomfortable and I don't like people make people uncomfortable. But I can give an example, good or bad, that this program does work. And I know that God doesn't make junk. You know, there's just some bad stuff happening to good people. And and I'm just a sick person trying to stay well. And my sponsor, Bill Moore, when he sat with me and helped me write out inventories, and that was scary, putting stuff on paper you know um Victoria, I say was really I, that was like bragging at first you know like, and then it got real you know? and i was high dad and i was afraid someone was going to crazy in my filthy two-bedroom apartment and find my stuff and then i read my stuff you know and i would carry with me to work and hide it in my desk you know, it was just a lot of, of uncomfortable stuff um but anyway my sponsor when i share with him my where I was able to do my thing, But I thought, truly, I only had one shot at the bright. I didn't know about the 10-step yet, so I was very thorough in my four step. Very thorough. It took me several months to do a lot. I had a lot of writing. And when I finally was able to uh, sit with my sponsor for all these papers, um, and I still remember ripping them out of my hand, I just come through with a book, and you know, I read it to me. And... Uh, and I still remember to this day when I was reading my fifth step like, yeah, my fifth step with my sponsor, he, he cringed a few times, and I just felt bad that I was making this wonderful man feel bad about the stuff that I had done to others, to myself. You know, it was just I, I, there, was, there was a lot of sick t- stuff in my existence. But you know what? That man sat with me and went through that fourth call about my part. And uh, so I go, and again, here I am, thinking I knew it all, and I didn't the put part I don't have part of it. These doctors, you know, screwed me up and blah, 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 and I got, you know, uh, giving me get deep details of what happened to me as a kid, but it was really awful. I said, this is terrible stuff, you know. Little kids aren't supposed to bleed like that, you know. You know they aren't supposed to have broken bones like that, you know. That wasn't my fault. And he told me that, that was the first time in my life that I didn't that someone told me that I was a victim. That was relief that was a big relief when he explained that to, to me. You know, I just thought I was a bad kid. That I deserved uh, all that stuff. And that's why I drank. I wanted to numb that. Jesus God. But uh, we tried we trudged on and uh, he told me on that column where I was affecting my I uh, was you know, I was pissed off angry. he goes, You know what my sponsor pissed me off a lot. And uh, he says, you know, Ray, when you go back, I was Ray, because, uh, you know, that the government name. The government changed all our names to English, and I, I keep our tribal name as well, and so forth. But, uh, he says, Ray, everywhere you put your upset, mad, or, you know, angry, he goes, we're going to find out what you're afraid of. And that pissed me off when my sponsor told me. Really, I was angry at my sponsor, because I said, no, I'm not afraid. You know, you don't understand. I've been shot at him, and you, fight, and I, you know, you don't understand a so we, on my part, he helped me. Because that fear that I had on my life, um, all those years, and why I drank to numb that, um, it was really awful. But uh, he was very patient with me and helped me look at where I was afraid and why I did my behavior and why I acted the way I did and why I reacted to situations in life the way I did. And it wasn't a quick thing for me, you know. It's talks about in the big book, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And my current sponsor says, I'm a quick learner, but I'm a slow applier, you know. And that's true for me today. I'm better at that today. But my sponsor got me involved not only with the steps, but understanding how to work them, how to apply the spiritual principles to my life, how to make a commitment to the meeting. My first commitment to called was Anonymous was... Um, A greeter, because he knew I didn't like to be touched. And there he was those some women's boobs again, you know, being <laughs> hugged, and I didn't like that. So he made me commit. and, he, and I, he says, remember you said you commit to going any lengths to your sobriety, and I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, he had to show up early for the meeting, my home group. And it was weeks, probably a month or so later until he finally told me he was getting there earlier, sitting in the car somewhere, cause I, to see if I got there. He wanted to know if I was serious about it. Sure enough, I'd be there. Shake people's hands and um, give those uncomfortable hugs and um, help clean up and be a part of this fellowship. You know, those are my baby steps. My father's real big on about baby steps. It's huge for me on baby steps. But he also talked to me about uh, and showed me how to do 12-step calls. And back then we did a lot of 12-step calls in the middle of the night, um, outside of a bar, people's apartment, the park, uh, at the zoo. You know uh in the middle of the night um so it got me involved in 12-step calls and i can honestly say and i like to say this too, because it's true for me that all my 12-step calls have been a success because i'm still sober you know i'm i'm so sober because i put myself out there with my sponsor with other members of this program to be there to help you know, alcoholic get them some help clean them up take them to now to these uh rehab places or detox places you know i've done that my sponsor also got me involved in hospital institution work and for six and a half years in president county uh well for the first four years of that i carried the message to the Carretters, um, institution where i was i did some time um it's closed now and uh yeah, even they segregated us there too. And they put me with the brown people and the white guys in their you know. They segregated us there. I don't know. But um, I carried the message there uh, with these two other men. Um, and then when that closed down, we were carrying the message to a uh, fire camp for two and a half years. And uh, that was really uh, amazing work for me uh, and commitment. And it taught me to be unconditional. Um, because I was carrying the message to mostly white people at that time, and here I was still not even all sober. I wasn't well just because I got sober. Doesn't mean everything was wonderful and well. It just wasn't. You know, I was still very, you know, fearful and hateful and stuff like that, and didn't believe in the God thing. I like, kind of did, but the things started happening. Um, wonderful things, truly wonderful things. You know, uh, I would see, and I mentioned this about the white people then at that time. Um, I would see you getting healthier first before I could see myself. Because white people back then had a lot of red spots on their faces just when they came in. And I could see those red spots going away, you know, and they go, why am are looking better? And I'm so messed up. I'm all jacked up, you know. I couldn't see. I didn't understand it. Because I would never look at myself in the mirror. I had such low self-esteem and hope, so I couldn't look in the mirror. I, for the longest time, I couldn't look in the mirror. And that was one of those baby steps my sponsor had me do. So he said, if you look in the mirror and say, hey, really, I've you and I that, forgive you. And I said, for the longest time, I couldn't do that. But I didn't give up. I didn't give up. I kept tuning up and showing up. I kept uh, uh, praying the little prayers in the big book until they started making sense to me. Because I would talk to my sponsor about stuff, and he would always piss me off, oh, you know. And at one time, you know, I remember, because I was trying to figure stuff out, you know, in an easier, softer way. And he says, uh, you know, Ray, goes, your analysis causes paralysis, and, then that, and that didn't make sense to me when he said that, but it pissed me off because he, he came from him, you know. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? He goes, you just have faith, you know. And he talked to me about that spiritual principle statue about faith and that surrender and trust, and I got it. You know, today I, I truly believe in my Creator. Today I believe, you know, again, like I said, God doesn't make junk, you know. And it's only because of Alcoholics Anonymous synonymous and what I've learned to live. My life, when you hear all these silly little things and all these acronyms about Paul, hungry and lonely, tired, or ego edging God out, and the God saying that that early on for me, they would talk about um, a group of drunks or good orderly direction. Those things make sense to me, but now it's God of a spirit within me, because I no longer kill that spirit. And because of that, I no longer drink, and I do things unconditionally uh, without any you know, giving something back from you. Um, I can live a comfortable life. Look, me, I mean, it's wonderful. I have problems, you know, and that's what the tent step is for. You know, and, uh, my sponsors that I've had over the years, because Bill moved away, Bill's been my sponsor, I mean, uh, Doug's been my sponsor about 20 years. I love Doug's. He has, like I said, 34 years. And, uh, these men and women who are, have been here before me, show me by their example, you know, we're, our, we're in the he's of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is how I stay sober. You know, by not saying no to sharing that little tip of life of my insane drinking life and drug life and sex and all that other stuff because there's a whole bunch more. and There's nothing that I would not share my own personal life with with the sponsor and other suffering alcoholics on a one-on-one basis because I've learned healthy boundaries um, in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, you all don't need to know all my stuff. You don't, you know, but if there's something that someone comes to me and we pray together, like my sponsor just asked me to do, and showed me how to do that, you get a holy hand, and um, praying, even if we're two or more gathered, you know, God's there. And God has been there a lot for me. Uh, I have to share one thing about, you know, why the traditions are so important, and then I'm gonna wrap this up, it's almost 25 after, but uh, I was uh, traveling uh, in Georgia uh, and I went to Rome, Georgia. And when I travel now, I, I seek out Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I went to a meeting and my so friend had taken me to a meeting and he dropped me off at this city hall meeting place, something like that. And I went in and I did not know it was for whites only. This was in 84, And I went in the meeting and it was for whites only. And I did not know that, I didn't know that. And uh, this woman that, when I walked in, I made like, but this woman <clears throat> pulled her son over and made him shake my hair. And I was dead. I was so, I mean, getting angry, shouldn't you? And I sat down and uh, I can't remember what went on in that meeting. I was just so angry because I was thinking, people, like people can't make me leave, you know? Uh, because I, I remember the tradition, the tradition about the third tradition about the only requirement for any membership is an honest desire not to drink. And I didn't want to drink. And um, I didn't understand the other thing. So when I came back, I talked to my sponsor. I was so angry. So it, what it did, it motivated me to learn more about the traditions and how to express them and be a part of the fellowship in a healthy way. And so I went back the following year to look for those bastards, you know. And they, They've moved, you know, but I had, but what it did, it put the fire under me to learn about, more about how this program works and how to apply those traditions to my life in a good way, you know, and how, because the steps are there to protect me for myself and the traditions are there to protect AA for me. I have no opinion on outside issues, you know, and because of that, I have been able to then a, a sponsor and friends, members of the Clovis KKK, uh, to uh, I have a really good friend of mine who's in the White family. I have another friend of mine, kind of dating her but she uh, was with the Woodpeckers. Um, you know, normally these people would have killed him. We'd have, you know, gotten horrible fights, you know. Um, but you know, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, the common denominator in here is about recovery, you know, and not not because of their beliefs or, or how they were raised or whatever I said. I rather than be sober, they're less likely to shoot me you know um if they're at least meetings here so that was so that, that that makes sense to me today you know i don't look at people at color or how they look so i've had the most amazing men step up to me and to do their sponsor and this is one of the blessings of call synonymous what you know because i'll be looking and you know you're a, you're a, you laugh, you laugh. you know we judge anything we don't judge we judge uh i sure the hell have and uh I, and this is a, one, of the, one of the many, many blessings of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> so, these men will talk to me and ask me if I was, you know, they don't a lot you know, and I think to be if I would be their sponsor. As soon as those words come out, lust and all that other stuff goes away because then I am there with that individual for the purpose of this program, to help another suffering alcoholic. When people were taking care of me when I couldn't drink my cup of coffee, you know, when I didn't have food to eat, they took me to the Red Robin, and that's the one thing I'll share with you, you know, that when the people found out that I was starving coming to these rooms, and I would make excuses when everyone would go out to eat afterwards, and thank you for taking a meal tonight. Um, that's why I had difficulty accepting those humble things and those wonderful blessings of this program. People started taking me and saying, hey, you know what, we're going to take you, we're going to buy you those mile hunts. So they would go out for these mile hunts, my ties the Red Robin, and mm-hmm. I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford it. And they said, we're going to buy this for you, and then, you know, later on in your life, you're going to be able to pay back. And I'm so grateful, before I call it autumn, that I'm able to pay back, not only by food, but with my time, giving people rides, being present. And the best race I can be because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's so much more that I can share with you, but I, again, it's not about making somebody uncomfortable about where alcohol and drugs took me and my behavior. It's about the gift that I have because I can be here, and be present, and stand in front of you as a, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous with all my flaws and say, you know what, it, it does get better. You know, they didn't promise me a better roses, a lot of money, and stuff like that. But I'm not a blackout truck driver. I'm not a menace to society. I care about people. I have probably 60 men that I used to run with. Back then, I think there's only three or four of us left. All the other ones are dead. I'm not, I'm not making that up. Um, overdoses, diseases, horrible deaths. And uh, today I get to live. And that's why I, I am so grateful that I get an opportunity to share a little bit about my twisted life and also the, the laughter and the amazing friendships. And in the big book it talks about, you know, uh, that we normally would not mix. You know, but I know I'm here because I am a sober member of this program. And the steps have freed me from that shame and that guilt. You know, what happened to me as a kid happened. You know, I'm responsible for my actions today and the steps to even to this day help me get comfortable with my own skin. and you know what you can judge me all you want yeah? you sweat up my butt just not you know the only one that can hurt me is me if i were to drink today and because of alcohol Anonymous and amazing friendships i don't have to drink today and i want to thank all of you for being here and i hope uh my hope which is hearing other people's experiences then keep coming back and you stay. Just stay. And stay involved. Stay in the herd. Don't get cut from the herd. Stay active. Give back, um, unconditionally. And the, the blessings will come. Thank you. you Appreciate everyone.